Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 2nd, and as always, I'm talking April the 2nd, 2022, and as always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States in Northern California. I've always thought of San Francisco as the most deregulated of American cities, the most neoliberal of cities, uh, which accounts for its extreme love of freedom and also for its profound injustices. We've done a lot of shows recently on neoliberalism. We had the Cambridge historian Gary Gerstel defining what exactly neoliberalism is, talking about his new book, very important new book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. He talks about this obsession with deregulation, both on the left and particularly, of course, on the right. And he intimately associates it with America. It's the cult of deregulation, the cult of innovation. We did a show earlier this week with a cultural historian, Daniel Horowitz, used to teach at Smith College on the East Coast of the United States. Uh, he's done a, a, he wrote a really interesting book on entertaining entrepreneurs, which makes sense of Shark Tank, the popularity of this reality television show in terms of how we've created a cult of innovation, a cult of uh, a cult of the privatization of things. So, what's the alternative? The alternative is the public person and the public world. Um, did a show a couple of days ago with a, a brilliant young writer, Ben McGrath. He has a new book out, River Man, which is about a, a dropout, a man who lived on the edge who spent his time traveling around American waterways. It's called River Man. The subtitle is An American Odyssey. It might be described as an American odyssey to an archaic, anachronistic kind of life, the life of the public man. We also did a show with the American diplomat Marie Yovanovitch, who I think represents the publicly spirited individual who stood up of course, to Putin, but above all else, to Trump, Donald Trump epitomizing the privatization of the South. Uh, Yovanovitch's book, Lessons from the Edge, um, is uh, is a bestseller. And I think in American terms, it's an appropriate lesson from the edge. The edge is, of course, the public sphere. It's been increasingly excluded from life in America. I've written a couple of arguments myself on lit hub on these developments one called liberal pieties and business school empathy aren't getting us out of this mess suggesting that business schools have dressed up privatization of things in the language of political correctness but i don't think uh, i'm certainly being tricked by that one i also wrote a piece earlier this week what kind of person will it take to lead us through these hard times, it was an essay built on the Yovanovitch piece, and my argument was that we need more publicly spirited individuals. That's what San Francisco is missing. My guest today um, has an important new book, and his his life and his organization are dedicated to fighting the things that I, I began talking about. Uh, Donald Cohen is the co-author of a book that came out at the end of last year, The Privatization of everything, how the 
plunder of public goods transformed America and how we can fight back. And I'm thrilled that Donald is joining us from Los Angeles. Uh, Donald, welcome. Uh, which town in San, in California has um, contributed more to the, 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 the cult of the privatization of everything? Uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco? Or are we collectively to blame for, for this catastrophe? Well, I, I may not know enough about San Francisco. Um, you know, it's San Diego. Uh, you know, when I, one of the things that got me involved many years ago was the largest social service, you know, a county level privatization of their IT system in the late 90s. It was a billion dollar deal. Um, and, you know, it got me on the, the train to realize there's something bigger going on here. So um, there is a, a huge amount of outsourcing and privatization here in Los Angeles. Um, a lot of uh, uh, all kinds of stuff, but the, a lot of social services, are, you know, are, are privatized to nonprofits. And, you know, there are issues to, to, to talk about there. Because right. And, and, and your book, um, I, I didn't want to steal your thunder. Your book does a, a wonderful job joining the dots on everything from healthcare to prisons, particularly to local administration. One of the things that I, I learned from your book, I've been reading it this morning, is the way in which private firms have essentially colonized private administration, local organizations, local councils and government, which is, again, a complete and utter catastrophe. How did this happen, Donald? Well, I think there's a few ways it comes together. So it, it, it the, you know, a few strains. One is, you know, when you cut taxes and when you don't have resources to provide the things that everybody wants, you know, good roads and libraries and schools and clean air and all the things, then you are um, open, more open as an elected official, say, at, a, at a, city, a mayor or city council to basically the marketing job of the, of the private sector that says we can do it cheaper, we can do it better, we can do it faster, and we can take a headache off, you know, a problem off, off your desk. So I think there's a, you know, one is so austerity plays a role. The second thing is kind of the, as you talk about in the beginning of the session about neoliberalism, about the idea that the, you know, the market is really a better instrument to deliver goods and services has, you know, is the air we breathe. It's has influenced at all levels of politics and governance at all levels. So there's sort of a belief system um, that, that we're, that people are, you know, and, and local governments are, are swimming in. Um, and then, you know, I guess the last would be, you know, there was a concerted effort, uh, you know, a 40, 50 year concerted effort to to attack the idea and the institution of government to organize private sector institutions to, you know, to seek, you know, the, the public dollars through contracts and other things. Um, and, to, you know, and to, to, you know, to to put them in place to, you know, to take over stuff. It's, Donald, you know, um one of the things I liked about the Gerstel book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, is that he doesn't just use Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump as a punch bag. In fact, if anything, he argues Trump is not a neoliberal. Um, he suggests that it happened both on the left and the right. So uh, he argues it's uh, Ralph Nader, for example, and his cult of the consumer. It's Jimmy Carter. It's certainly Bill Clinton. Um, in your book, do you make this privatization of everything something that 
uh, we can blame on conservatives, on the Republican Party, or are progressives uh, and certainly centrist Democrats, are they equally to blame? Well, certainly, if you think about it, people do like to say, you know, to, people do believe that Reagan was the, you know, lit the fuse for privatization in America, and it's simply not true. It really was at the national level, it was really Bill Clinton who supercharged and institutionalized Reagan's, you know, Re the Reagan administrations and the people around him, their ideas about the private sector taking over public goods. But it was Bill Clinton that did it. Um, and, and a few really important ways. One is he, when he got elected, he uh, he assigned Pre Vice President Gore to to do a review of government and operations called the National Performance Review. Privatization and the idea that we were customers of public services were fully baked into the to the two books that came out of that and to the ideas that came out of the Gore Commission. And then when welfare reform happened, it was a really the first massive, uh, you know, uh, uh, permission to privatize social services, um, you know, that, that we had seen. So it was really Clinton who was supercharging it. Uh, you know, when you talk about Ralph Nader, it's, you know, I, I, I think about it probably a little differently. Um, it's, you know, because because Nader's effort did ultimately lead to the National Highway Trade uh, uh, traffic and safety act to you know to, uh, you know him and rachel carson led to the epa so led to the to an expansion of the regulatory state so i think i, I would i would categorize those as slightly differently it's easy of course to use bill clinton as a, 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 as a punch bag as well he, he used to be fat enough anyway maybe he's lost a bit of weight recently but um what about the argument which was fairly mainstream, certainly 30 years ago, that the state was bloated, the state was overblown, the state was inefficient. It was the same argument, of course, that Tony Blair made in the United Kingdom, arguments made against uh, the welfare economics of, of, of the British system, and certainly of the New Deal system that was, I think, even you might acknowledge, in some degree of decline. Um, if we go back to the 70s, for example, and we seem to be returning to the 70s now symbolically on so many different levels, I never quite realized what an important decade it was. Uh, today, we're going back to the 70s in terms of geopolitical rivalries, nuclear war scares, inflation, oil prices, and all the rest of it. Was the state in as bad a condition as uh, new liberal thinkers like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair claim? Well, that's a really great question. I don't want to overstate my knowledge and expertise, but, you know, I did grow up in that period. Um, I think in part, yes, and I, but in part, no, right? So, I mean, I think we have to parse it a little bit. So one is, you know, you have to remember the federal government, and we're just talking about the federal government now, but also when you add devolution, it's governments across the country as well. They are complicated institutions and complicated and bureaucratic, both because of their size and their scale and their scope and that they are democratic institutions. So there, you know, there always needs to be constant reform. That's why even the Bill Clinton, the, you know, the National Performance Review that Clinton did, you know, part of it was motivated by let's figure out how to improve the bureaucracy the bureaucracy and increase services you know it also added the other stuff so i think so you know it there was a need to to modernize the administrative state no question 
But I think the what what was also true is that there was an effort in that period of time by you know you know corporate powers by you know, uh, ideological conservatives and you know market fundamentalists to take advantage of some of the failures of the state and just general discontent. Because remember that was when the Vietnam you know at the beginning of the seventies when the Vietnam War was happening. So there was a lot of discontent to take advantage of that to begin to weaken and you know uh, the the state and to and to walk and to position themselves as the reformers with a very different worldview that we should not provide a, a social safety net and the social wage we should you know that people should be you know th that the market should rule and so there was a confluence of taking advantage of this content um and uh and then reagan comes in and you know he's not so much interested in reforming the state I like the language, uh, Donald, of your subtitle, The Privatization of Everything, how the plunder of public goods transformed America and how we can fight back. Um, I might even go further. Rather than the plunder, it's more like the looting, isn't it? Yeah, it's the looting and it's the takeover. Because, um, you know, some of the things we talk, you know, we give lots of examples, illustrations in the book of what's going on. But at the at the core I think what we write about, what we, what I've discovered over time, and what I think the the core idea in the book is that that privatization is two things: it's an assault on democracy, and I can explain what I mean there, and it's a looting. There's a massive amount of money to be made. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, uh, you know, U.S. governments in America were spending seven trillion dollars a year. You know, that's a little more now. So there's money to be made in every sector, and and large corporations are going after it. Um, but in terms of what I mean about democracy, yeah, you know, I'd like you to follow up on that, because um, as you're suggesting, there is no coincidence between the American crisis of democracy and this looting or plundering of public goods. No, there's not. So uh, let me just give an example, because I think it's the best. So Chicago, uh, you know, we, we read about this in the book, of course, but I've talked about it many, many times since it happened. Chicago in 2008, the worst of the recession you know, really desperate times for local governments and state governments and, and, and people. Um, uh, the city was offered by a consortium of three global companies, Morgan Stanley, a sovereign wealth fund from one of the Middle Eastern countries and a national parking company, a parking lot company. They were offered, the city was offered $1.1 billion upfront in cash in exchange for control of the city's 36,000 parking meters for 75 years. They voted very quickly. They did the deal because, you know, acting out of desperation and, and you know, and ideological. Uh, and, I, and I'm assuming this didn't go to any referendum. It just happened. It was a bad oh, no, deal. It, it, it was announced on a Friday and it was, the city council voted on a Tuesday. It was that quick. Um, there was no scrutiny. So, but here's what, the, when I when I make the point about democracy, here's, here's what I mean. Now, incredibly stupid way to finance, you know, current, operations with future future revenues. Unbelievably dumb. Who, this is to 2083. But here's the problem. If the city now, for the remain for the life of the contracts, the remaining 60 some odd years, wants to eliminate parking spots for but to uh, dedicated bus lanes or bike lanes or pedestrian malls because they want to change land use or deal with housing, the fundamental responsibilities of a municipal government, land use, housing, transportation, clean air, all sorts of things, they have to buy the spots back, right? 
So what that means is that puts a straitjacket, a fiscal straitjacket on the on the elected decision makers and uh, and higher decision makers of the city to not carry out their job. They have to put the interests of the uh, you know of the private operators first to, to make sure that their you know that their profits are you know that their revenues are protected. That's an assault on democracy, and you—it's a terrible deal. And every mayor in the country knows. Yeah, that. and you write I, I didn't know about this deal, but the book is—it's appalling. I mean, the 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 private investors began to make a profit over after a year or two. It's a guaranteed way of making huge amounts of money at the expense of the Chicago taxpayer. And this is in a democratically run city, so we can't blame it on Reagan or Trump or the Republicans or Mitch McConnell. That's right. Well, and, you know, the parking rates went up. Everybody in Chicago hates the deal. They went up way up. But here's the thing is, so maybe, you know, they needed to go up a little bit to, you know, to run the city or to modernize the parking meters. But why give that money away? Why not take that money if, if whatever rates? Yeah, it is. But what about the broader picture, Donald, of the crisis of, Amer of American democracy? Um, well, our infatuation with neo-authoritarian charlatans like Trump. Um, our lack of respect for the democratic institutions, the fact that one party, the Republicans, seem to be increasingly indifferent to these democratic institutions and traditions. How, how, how closely connected is that with your thesis about the plundering, the looting of public goods? Yeah, well, let, me, uh, let me just make one last point about that to make the, to connect to the. Okay, point. go on. Yeah, no, but no, it's a, it's a good, it's, a, it's an important question. So, the the reason I use Chicago is because that contract, while it's a terrible, is illustrative of when we hand over, whether it's a prison or a road or or our democratic institutions, um, to, to you know to the influence and control of private of private interests. Um, those those feature there are features like that in every deal, right? So they want to turn democracy into a commodity. Um, that you know that's one of the connections here. So I don't know if you you know read about it in the book, but there's a in Georgia, the state decided that th there's two ways to look up the code, the statute, and you know that's the state law in, in Georgia. One is the the formal, and one is the annotated municipal you know state code. They privatized the state code and gave it to LexisNexis and gave them the copyright. So what they wanted to do is make, you know, is basically turn what should be free, we should be able to look up what the law is, into a commodity that you had to pay for. And they gave them the copyright. They actually wanted to hand over our ability to understand the law to a private company. So, which kind of gets at, you know, really, and this is Georgia, right? Which is also, you know, engaged in, you know, a great deal of voter suppression and all, this, and all of this. I mean, I think the current attacks on democracy are really about control. They really, I mean, I think that's pretty clear. It's not a, a it's sort of an obvious statement. You know, conservatives and the, you know, and the, and those that pay for them, uh, you know, want permanent political control. And what do they get for that? What they get is, you know, deregulation, opportunities to privatize and, and profit from, you know, and profit from public services and, and assets, um, uh, lower taxes. So I don't see them as disconnected at all. Because yeah, and um, as, you, as you suggest in the book, and we've done lots of shows on this, the ultimate consequence, we had a show with Heather McGee, who blurbs your book, her yeah. book, the sum, of, uh, the sum of Us is a really important book about how the consequences of this are deepening racism, compounding racism, confirming racism. 
You see it in local administration, in prisons, in the dismantling of healthcare, of mental institutions. There's just so much to this. Really important conversation with Donald Cohen, the co-author of The Privatization of Everything. Um, His day job is running um, uh, In the Public Interest, ITPI. And I want to take a a short break now, Donald. Um, We've laid out the problem. It's one thing to lay out the problem. It's another to figure out how we're going to fix it. So after the break, after a 60-second break, I want to talk about how we can address this plundering, the looting uh, of the public space, the public sphere in America, and how we can, uh, sorry, the private space, and how we can uh, reestablish what I think Donald and I both believe should be the primacy of the public space in America. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Donald Cohen, the co-author of The Privatization of Everything. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this Um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. uh, And you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, In terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Donald Cohen, the co-author of The Privatization of Everything in that short break. I said, I always say that uh, I'm not a big fan of Facebook. And the reason I'm not a big fan of Facebook is uh, Facebook epitomizes the way in which Silicon Valley has plundered uh, public goods for their own particular interests and got away with the scam of presenting themselves as the new public square when they're anything but... Uh, Donald, uh, in your day job, you run um, um, in the public interest. What are you trying to do uh, at ITPI? This is such a huge challenge. I mean, you're a a nonprofit based in Oakland in California. Um, What can you realistically begin to do to push this huge boulder back up the hill? 
Well, there's you know, different levels of that. Organizationally, we don't do anything alone. We work with groups and community groups and unions and policymakers all across the country. So it's, you know, that's so just to set that aside. So let me raise it up to the larger question. So what do we do? Right. I mean, I could talk if you'd like. I could talk about some of the things. The Absolutely. No, I'd love I'd love to, to get uh, your take on, on what needs to be done by a, a public. I mean, by definition, a public interest group like your, yourselves to rebuild the public sphere? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. And, what, you know, there's a there's an ideological project and there are practical projects, practical directions to go. So the ideological project is, I, I tell you, there's two things we have to do. The, the, when private, the pri people that want to privatize or interests want to privatize say cheaper, better, faster, business is more efficient. Um, competitions are better. Which know. is, uh, uh, sorry to jump in here, um, Donald, which isn't always untrue, let's face it. No, it, it, it's not always untrue, but let me let me come back to that because it's not, I mean, because, and I'll tell you why. So I want to break, what, I'm, what I want to get to is saying we need to interrogate those ideas. They say business is more efficient, okay? That becomes a truth in the discussions on, you know, in the real world, right? It's, they're more efficient. So it's really important to interrogate that. And and because, yes, sometimes it's true, but sometimes governments are more efficient. That's not the question. Sometimes the profit motive is a positive thing. Sometimes the profit motive is a negative thing, you know, similarly with competition. So we, we have to break through the the absoluteness of those truths as those truths as they're as they're, you know, promulgated. Uh, let me say, let me focus on efficiency first. When because we get this, you know, we deal with this every day. Oh, a business is more efficient when it's that road or that prison or that X. Efficiency really means, especially remember when you're privatizing, you're giving it to a private company that has returns to investors and usually higher compensation for executives and maybe even debt service for mergers and acquisitions. So there's money that's leaving the service. So we really, when you interrogate that, you go, okay, well, efficiency means we're going to spend less and we're going to get as much or more. We think it's really important, and I do this all the time, is say, okay, well, what are you going to spend less on? Are you going to reduce the number of workers? They do that. There are prisons that, you know, and uh, that have gone from, you know, low one to, there was one that went from one to 12 ratio of inmates to corrections officers to one to 60. Really bad things happened in that, in that, in that facility. You could pay less, have higher, you know, and fewer benefits. That's not in our interest when inequality is a real issue. Um, you could use lower quality equipment. You know, so there's really the point there is there's really a finite list of things that you can do. So I think it's super important to interrogate efficiency. Similarly, with competition in you know, charter schools now are it's at the market version. It's a market model of schools. It's, you know, they're publicly funded, privately operated, nonprofits and for profits operate them. But it's basically a market model that the, that schools compete with each other and public schools for students and the and the dollars that come with them. But what happens in competition in schools is that there are incentives to push out or screen out kids that are more costly to educate, special ed, you know, with special needs or sing, English as a second language or behavioral issues um, because they would bring down, might bring down the test scores in the competitive market when people, you know, which is a key factor of, of decisions. They also require, you know, it, it, competition means that you don't share. And charter schools, the original idea of charter schools was to create laboratories of innovation and share the knowledge. 
but but there are charter schools around the country that uh, require teachers to sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, as a condition of employment, that they won't share the school's trade secrets if they go to another job. And what are those trade secrets? Um, lesson plans, curriculum, teaching methods, the very thing that we are both paying for and that we should have broadly. So the point, the, the point is not that competition is bad. The point is that competition ha has downsides, right? And you have to understand that. So I think that's crucially important. The, the second, if I just could continue, the second is we need to make clear, this is again at the idea level, that there's a difference between market things and public things. That I, I believe that the market simply is the wrong tool to provide public things. Now, that's not to say businesses can't be involved, but if you want everyone to have health care, you can't let the market do it. If you want to get a if you want to get a, a letter to every corner of the country at the same cost, the market can't do it. Businesses can help, but market can't do it. And you could go down the list of things that simply can't be done if you leave it to the market. How, how so, much does this require, Donald, a, a cultural transformation? Done a lot of shows about this. I had the English writer John Alexander on the show arguing that the, the biggest issue we have is transforming ourselves from consumers back into citizens or into, into citizens and whether we were really originally ever it, as citizens is another issue. The, the, the subtitle of his new book, Citizens, is why the key to fixing everything is all of us. Has there been, um, yeah. has there been a, a kind of uh, a, a alongside the institutional and economic changes, um, this 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 cultural tendency, and it's perhaps captured best of all Silicon Valley and Facebook, Google, but perhaps more than anything else by Amazon. The idea that the it's not the citizen that's always right; it's the consumer that's always right. And that there should and always will be a primacy of the consumer. Do we need to attack the idea of us as ideally consumers? Absolutely. You hit the nail right on the head. It's a core. Um, it, it is absolutely at the core of all this. And, you know, remember what I said about the Clinton, uh, the, you know, the Gore initiative and the books that came out of the National Performance Review. It consciously used the word customer and consumer. Right now, now, you could say part of the motivation is so that we're delivering better services, but there is a difference from being a consumer when really what you're trying to do is we all do it, buy something, make ourselves, you know, satisfy our own individual needs. There's a difference between that and being a citizen where you want to satisfy your own needs, but you understand the fact of our interdependence, right? Is that it is in our interest as a citizen, as a, as a human for everyone to have health care, for every child to be educated. So I think that's exactly the cultural shift that we need. We have, and you know, COVID, you know, obviously not everybody believes this, but to me, it's made very clear that, you know, the health of all of us is depends on the health of each of us. We are connected. And that's- Although, uh, yeah, you begin your book with the stuff on COVID. There is an argument to make that one of the reasons why perhaps America at least pioneered an effective vaccine fast was through- um, throwing a large amount of money into the private sector, and had this been a centralized effort, it would have been more successful. Less, uh, sorry, less successful, more yeah. bureaucratized, and and we still might be looking around for a COVID vaccine today. Well, I think th that's you know when I talk about privatization, I say it's private control over public goods. Okay, so the question is who was in charge, right? Um, first off, let's you know let's put some information on the table here. So. 
part of the reason, one of the, there's a massive amount of public dollars and research that ultimately went into the production of those vaccines, going way back to the Human Genome Project that ultimately stimulated the sequencing technology that allowed us, that allowed scientists or whoever to quickly sequence the genes, you know, the RNA genes, you know, of the of the vac, uh, of COVID nineteen, right? So that you can't separate the public from the private in that. Now, the second thing is we, you know, we gave Moderna a grant. We we did a pre buy agreement with Pfizer. We did massive public investment in that, in in just the right way, right? And there was even public science involved. The problem, so that's there's nothing wrong with that. It was the right thing to do. The 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 wrong thing to do was to give them the intellectual property, it was to allow them to profit from our investment and our public, global public health crisis. They can make money. There's, we could have figured out how they could make a decent profit, but to give them the intellectual property gives them control over global health. And it's just- Right, and, and I think, and, and, and this is probably the subject of another show, Donald, perhaps another book, is if there is one sector that captures everything about your argument it's it's american healthcare i was looking um this uh, this this piece caught my eye this morning um on the bbc uh talking about the world's most agile countries countries need to be agile in our dynamic age of course and america shows up um in terms of its adaptability says that uh, uh ranked at the top of the agility index the uh, the U.S. may not have implemented a federally mandated lockdown like many other Western countries, but its market-driven economy enabled an ad- adaptability that spurred quick innovation in the face of COVID-19. Um, mm. Leaving aside whether or not that's an accurate report, can America remain agile, dynamic, innovative uh, in a culture, a society in which uh, stops plundering the public space, public goods. Can you? Can we in America have our cake and eat it when it comes to the public space? Well, we have done it, and we do do it. Um, you know, there. You know, if you just if you go below the you know the the news, there's enormous numbers of things that are happening at the EPA regulations. Uh, at, you know, at uh, in the Department of Labor, at the OMB, there are things that are happening in the government now that reflect a different idea that, you know, and we could go down the list. Even the, you know, the, the infrastructure bill that was passed, there's been privatization baked into it, but fundamentally it was a very good thing. So that there are signs that we can do things to, that we understand, you know, um, uh, you know, the politics of the country, you know, makes us all doubt whether we can, you know, move forward in, a, in an effective way. But the reality is it's actually happening at all levels of government. It's just, here's something I, I think about it. I just, how I describe government and in, 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 the, in the public, it's both to the public, it's both invisible and ubiquitous, right? We pay attention to what's going on in Washington. We may pay attention to what's going on in our city council. But there's public things that all around us that are actually we rely on every day to get through the day that are actually you know pretty good. Yeah, it's a, an important point. And actually, I did a conversation yesterday with the environmentalist Eugene Linden, who talks about the massive amount of innovation in, in uh, coming down the pike when it comes to dealing with our environmental crisis. But perhaps it's international rather than state based. Finally, um, Donald, what about the role of technology? I talked earlier about how 
companies like Facebook have appropriated the public ideal for their own private ends. Can technology be a fix? I did an interview a couple of months ago with a good writer, Jamie Suskin, future politics he's written about, uh, about how can technology change politics in the 21st century. He wrote, politics in the 20th century was dominated by a single question, how much of our collective life should be determined by the state and what should be left to the market and civil society? And he goes on, now the debate's different. To what extent should our lives be directed and controlled by powerful digital systems? Most of the zeitgeist, uh, particularly amongst progressives, has shifted against these digital systems. But can they be helpful, Donald, in rebuilding the public space in America? There's a a new appetite, enthusiasm for what we're calling Web3 in Silicon Valley, these decentralized networks sort of captured by cryptocurrencies and other blockchain-like uh, businesses. Is that real or is it just a repeat of the past? Yeah, well, let me, let me answer in a much more practical way because, uh, you know, I don't know the largest question. I think decentralization, uh, you know, I think in the end, when you when you decide something is a public thing, which means public means all, everyone has to have access, everyone has to be able to get, um, you know, I think the deregulation, you know, in whatever level, whether it's crypto or, or whatever, you know, this other stuff is problematic. But so the real question, I think, is tech's a tool. Can it be used for good? Sure. We all use it every day. I mean, and, and you know, we use it. To, we couldn't be doing this without tech. We couldn't be doing this. You know, I, we I, I used to have maps, you know, and I don't have maps anymore. It's kind of a miracle, right, that I can, you know, someone can talk to me in my, from my phone. But I think one of the things that would be is interesting to really pursue is the, the discon, part of what's going on in America is people are disconnected from their citizenship, from the, the government institutions, that, you know, the democratic institutions that we elect to, you know, to do our work. And so I think there's real opportunity to connect people better, right? And to connect people more, I should say, that would, you know, that make us aware of the, you know, and make us aware and able to participate better in democracy. And I think that would be a really good thing. So let me, you know, I just think, I, remember it's a tool. Who owns well, it certainly would be a good thing. And, and I don't think there's any doubt that your new book, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back is also a very good thing. Congratulations on the book, uh, Donald, and everything else you're doing at ITPI in the public interest. I think it's important. What else, in addition to your new book at the beginning of April 2022, should people be reading? It doesn't have to be about the plundering of the public space. What are you reading these days, Donald? Well, if there's a, a couple, one that I'm reading, one that I read, given some of the things that you brought up, and one is I'm, I'm actually reading about land in Scotland called The Poor mm. Had No Lawyers, it's sort of a history of control of land. In that Scotland. is a great title. Who's it by? It's by Andy Whiteman. I think he was a, might have been a former legislator in Scottish Parliament. I'm not sure. But you know, because I'm thinking a lot about land and housing and who owns, you know, because mm. of crazy housing prices and all of that. It's it's a private, privatized public good. We all need shelter, but it's a market good. So, but I, I wanted to understand the history. The other book I want to mention is a book that's been out for a while called Consumers Republic by a historian, Elizabeth Cohen. She's a Harvard Harvard historian. Mm. And the reason I want to mention, it's one of my favorite books. And, and I, I, you know, I, I did an interview with her recently because it just gets at the history of consumerism 
yeah. and the interaction of consumerism and citizenship that you talk about earlier. It's a really powerful and important uh, historical look at that. We'll have to get, do you know her? I'll have to get her on the show. Yeah, I do know her. Yeah. Good. And finally, Donald Cohen, the co-author of Privatization of Everything. Uh, Donald, uh, and I can imagine what you're going to argue here. Who, who's in charge of things? Who runs the world on uh, April the 2nd, 2022? Well, um, you know, ultimately, I think it really I'm a little bit focused on the billionaires, uh, you know, that seem to be, you know, Jeff Bezos. And, you know, there seem to be a, a lot of overlap between the billionaires and the tech industry, as you talk about. I think they because they because they have global power at a different level. You know, we're seeing that with Russia. Right. I mean, maybe, you know, you know, in terms of the power they have, you know, to to cut Russia off from Facebook or whichever platform they did. I mean, that's power. They used it for a good thing, perhaps people say, but it's still power, right? Right. And they have power to, of mobility. They have power to move and they have power to outsource. The supply chains are their supply chains, the ones they created to outsource production, right? And so there's an enormous amount of power, concentrated economic power in this country that I think is really at the core of so much we deal with because economic power begets political power.